Okay, let's turn to the book of Revelation this morning, chapter 3. I'm, I was very close last week to finishing the message on the church at Philadelphia, but I just didn't want to run late. I was very close. I probably could have finished it in 10 minutes. But we're just going to wrap this message up today. A lot of people are not here, so I don't want to get into Laodicea. Uh, next week I'll be out of town. Ricky will be preaching at my sending church in Raleigh, Living Word Baptist Church. And then the week after that, Brother James from Bangladesh will be sharing with you folks. So this will be a clean break. When I come back from my preaching trip, we'll get into Laodicea, which is the time period we're living in today. And then we'll start moving through the book of Revelation. Believe it or not, before we're done, we are done with this book, there will come a Sunday when we will actually uh, go through an entire chapter in a single Sunday. So trust me, um, that will happen. I know it seems to be moving slow. So the message to the church at Philadelphia, Philadelphia is the remnant church. Like Smyrna, Christ had no condemnation for the Philadelphian church. It was only a commendation. And um, we had been talking about these things. We talked about how there is a lesson in the message to Philadelphia that there's a lesson in brotherly love. We looked at how the Bible defines brotherly love and the brotherly love we are supposed to have one for another. This brotherly love is not something different than the agape love of God. It's the same thing. Philadelphia and agape in the New Testament are interchangeable terms. Okay? They're interchangeable terms, just like soda and soft drink, interchangeable terms. So we're not called to a different type of love one for another as believers than what God had for us in Christ. We're called to that same type of love one for another. That's brethren to brethren. Okay? Brethren to brethren. It saddens me that in the churches today there is more concern with appeasing the wicked at the expense of the brethren. I see this every time something comes up in the news with Christians who are out evangelizing or trying to share the gospel and they run into some problem with the police, some unconstitutional intimidation by the police or perhaps some, some intimidation or aggravation at the hands of the mob. And you'll see so-called Christians on Facebook or on comments in terms of online articles, just biting and devouring the brethren. Maybe the brethren didn't do everything just right on the streets, but they're going after them and siding with the wicked and going with the lost. And I think that's shameful. I think it's disgusting. Because we're called to have love one for another. And if you seek to appease the lost or kiss the rear end of the wicked at the expense of love for your brethren, even those brethren that may not see eye to eye with you on every minute point of doctrine, then you have a problem and your love is out of order. And I think that's something the New Testament is very clear about. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, we know good and well that Jesus, John 6, told someone what His commandment was. This is the work of God. You believe on Him whom God hath sent. That's the commandment. Is that what you do? Or are you trying to earn God's favor through works? I want to read a story to you a little bit later today from the Philadelphia church period where a pastor himself in England in the 1850s was trying to figure out sanctification when he'd never even been justified. So this preacher was preaching one Saturday and was converted by his own sermon. It's an interesting story. One of many fascinating accounts that happened during the Philadelphia church period. 
Um, but Jesus' command to believe on Him. A new commandment He gave us to love one another. That's not love for the world. That's love for the brethren. And then those two are put together in the book of 1 John when John reminds the Christians of the commandments that Jesus gave. And then, of course, He gave us His great commission. So to love Jesus is to keep His commandments. And if His commandments include anything, they include believing on Him as a sole means of salvation, loving our brethren in Christ, and preaching the gospel. And those are the things that the church in America today gives the least attention to. Trust in Christ for salvation, love for the brethren and preaching the gospel. It's all about something else. And that's what distinguishes man-centered ministry at Laodicea from God-centered ministry at Philadelphia. We talked about brotherly love in this message. Um, We talked about um, the allusion to uh, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who had the keys of David in the Old Testament, how that was a type of Christ and it reveals Christ's authority and it shows the difference between man-centered and Christ-centered ministry. We got into the commendation that Jesus gave to the church. He commended them in the message to the church at Philadelphia for three things. He commended them for three things. He said, I've given you an open door of ministry because because you have little strength. That's not an insult. That's a compliment. In other words, they understood their strength couldn't come from themselves. It was in God. Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. They had little strength. They kept God's Word, not something that's very popular today, and they did not deny Christ's name. That's why the church was commended. And if you remember, Philadelphia was in a center of pagan idolatry. It was a town rocked by earthquakes. It was a town rocked by pagan debauchery in the worship of the god Dionysius. Wicked. And yet this church had a witness. It was of little strength because its strength was in God and yet it kept God's Word and did not deny His name. We talked about how this is a picture of the church during the great revivals and missionary uh, movements of the 18th and 19th centuries and how the church of that day, we think, oh, everybody was just saved and the Gospel was going throughout the world. No. Some of these great revival preachers used by God were ostracized by their churches. The churches were closed to them to them, but bless God, the fields were open. And we see the fulfillment of the Philadelphia church in the 18th and 19th centuries. And then we get into the promise. Christ commends the church, and then He gives them a promise in view of their faithfulness. And that's kind of where we got last time. First promise was one of vindication. Those that ostracized them, those that claimed to know God but persecuted them, The faithful would be vindicated in the day of judgment. Faithful Christian, those that mock you, those that say you give Christians a bad name because you're being faithful to the Lord, you'll be vindicated in the day of judgment. Vindication is a promise of God to the faithful remnant. Deliverance. Jesus told the church at Philadelphia, because you've kept the word of my patience, I will keep you from the hour of temptation which is coming to try all the earth. Friends, this promise of deliverance is the rapture of the church. Okay? There are some that do not believe in the rapture. That's fine. I do. And I believe it's clearly taught in Scripture. I believe mid-tribulational and post-tribulational raptures are unbiblical. I don't believe it's an issue that 
causes someone to fall on different sides of justification or salvation, but it is important. And I believe very strongly that Christ will come for the remnant to rapture them out of the earth before He pours His wrath on the world. That doesn't mean we sit around and are inactive. No, those that know Christ is a coming are, are motivated by that and are out there to serve Him. But the promise of deliverance via the rapture is given to the faithful remnant. We're going to talk more about the rapture later, but it's clearly revealed in the Scriptures. If you read the book of Revelation, you see a type of the rapture when John is caught up into heaven to view the throne room in Revelation 4. You see the churches in heaven in Revelation 5. And then not mentioned again until the end. Okay? So it's very interesting. We'll get into a study. If some of you are interested, and you go to our ministry website, fullproof.org, F-U-L-L-proof.org, under the commentary section, I wrote an article years ago in defense of a pre-trib rapture. I think it's pretty comprehensive. My professor at the time in seminary did not hold to that position, but he held my paper up before the class and said it was the best defense of that doctrine he'd ever seen. I don't say that to toot my own horn, I'm a nobody, but... If you have questions, it might be a helpful reference tool for it. So it's, it's, a, it's accessible there in PDF format if you're interested. And we'll talk more about that later. God's program throughout history has been to deliver the righteous from wrath. Not from tribulation brought on by men or brought on by sin, but from God's wrath. God's wrath was poured out on the earth when Noah's, in Noah's day what did God do? God took Enoch out. God took Enoch out, delivered him. He was righteous. He took Noah out of the flood, delivered him. He was righteous and his family. What did God do with Lot? He couldn't pour his wrath on Sodom until Lot and his family got out. Peter sums it all up and says the Lord knows how to deliver them from tribulation that are faithful. Another interesting point. 2 Thessalonians tells us that Antichrist will arise when the restrainer is taken out of the way. What is the restrainer? Well, it's obvious in the context of that passage that it's the Holy Spirit. Only when the witness of the Holy Spirit through the indwelling of the believer is removed from the earth can iniquity reach its full. Some people say, well, the restrainer there is not the Holy Spirit, it's human government. Well, how can it be human government when human government is the instrument whereby Antichrist takes over the world? He sets up a human government, the ultimate human government. So friends, the only way for the witness of the Holy Spirit to be absent is for the church to be absent during the reign of Antichrist. Because the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. And so there's another evidence right there. The restrainer can be no other than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's witness in this earth is to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And when you take that conviction out... Evil is unrestrained. I was sharing with the ladies yesterday in our seminar. Someone asked me a really good question. What if I'm on the way to the car and I've got my child with me? I talked about how you always want to keep at least one hand free. And what if I have my child in one hand and I've got groceries in the other? What if I'm approached? What if I'm attacked? What do I do with my child? It's a great question. My recommendation is you always put your child in a shopping cart. I don't care how many bags of groceries you have. If you're walking to the car, use the shopping carts. 
The shopping carts can be a weapon or a barrier between you and an attacker. You can put your child in a shopping cart so that if you are approached or attacked, your child is stable. But use a shopping cart, ladies. That's an easy way to prevent someone from wanting to approach you. You can use it as a weapon. But I said in a case where you don't have a shopping cart and you've got a child in the arm, remember every human being has the witness of the Holy Spirit. Conviction, sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is a witness that everyone is exposed to. They have a conscience. Last resort, put your child in your arms between you and your attacker. And you think, well, that's crazy. No, your attacker has a conscience just like you do. It might be seared. And you might have a chance of playing on the emotions of his conscience by putting that child between you and him. But when the witness of the Holy Spirit isn't here in the earth anymore, there is no conscience. There is no... Evil is unrestrained. I was reading an article this past week where a man had raped some folks in Florida and then he ended up in the home of a college student in an apartment and he was going to rape her and she began to speak the name of Christ and to speak the Scriptures in front of him and he came under conviction. And she ended up praying with him before he went into the night. And when he was apprehended, he admitted that it, it was that appeal to God's Word that convicted him. So that's because the witness of the Holy Spirit still falls here. But when that's gone, evil is unrestrained. And so I believe the church has to be absent. I'm not talking about churchianity. I'm talking about true Christians, the remnant. That means the witness is gone. I believe during the period of tribulation, when the, when the, when the Jewish servants of God are sealed and become His witnesses, and there's a great mass of Gentile converts during that period. We see that in Revelation 7. I believe the ministry of the Holy Spirit will revert to the role, it, the role He had in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came and went upon people. He came upon Saul. Saul prophesied. He came upon David. He went. Jesus spoke of this in John 3 with Nicodemus. He talked about the wind. It goes wherever it wants to go. You can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is the Spirit. Jesus there was referring to the Spirit in His Old Testament dispensation. That changes now because the Holy Spirit at Pentecost indwells the believer. But in His Old Testament role, which will be His role in the time of tribulation, He will come and go. But His role as restrainer in terms of the indwelling of the believer, is gone. And that means evil is unrestrained. If you think that, well, I hope I'm okay with Christ, but if the rapture takes place and I'm left around, I'll, I'll get, be at peace with Him then. I've heard people say foolish things like that. No, you won't. If you've heard the Gospel now, and you reject it, and you're content in your churchianity, when Christ comes for His church and you're left behind, you won't believe on Him. Second Thessalonians also says that God will send, in place of the restrainer, a spirit of delusion to deceive those that have delighted in lies. Who will be the great mass of Gentile converts during the tribulation because of the preaching of the Jewish servants? I believe it will be those that have never clearly been confronted with the Gospel. And there are people like that right here in America, believe it or not, that have never truly heard the Gospel because the only church they know is a church that talks about repeating a prayer and putting a check in an offering plate. So, deliverance was promised to the church at Philadelphia. The faithful remnant today, that's a promise from God. Deliverance from the wrath to come. And then finally, the believers 
at Philadelphia our promised identity. It was mentioned here in the text that there were those who claimed to be Jews, but Jesus said they're really of the synagogue of Satan. I will make them that persecute you and criticize you come to worship before your feet. I will vindicate you. In view of the identity that the remnant has, oh, you're bringing a bad name on Christians. You're the reason people turn away from Christ. God says, that may be your identity to the fake church, but I have an identity for the faithful. An identity. Chapter 3, verse 12. That's where we're going to focus today. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall no more go out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. That is a promise of identity. Last week we talked about uh, the pillar. You know, visualize an earthquake. What's the last thing left standing? Whether it's an earthquake or ancient ruins, it's usually the pillar. The pillar is a picture of permanency or steadfastness, endurance. That's a promise. That's a promise of eternal security for the believer. I've said it before. I'm an avid denier of once saved, always saved, but a firm believer in eternal security. What does that mean? Well, once saved, always saved is a typical little Southern Baptist doctrine that says if you raise your hand during an invitation or you walk an aisle and repeat a prayer and do the little formula, then you're saved and it doesn't matter what you do. Just write the name and date in the Bible and you're always saved. It doesn't matter. Whether or not you keep sinning or your life has changed is of no consequence because we got your name on the church roll. That's once saved, always saved. Eternal security, those that repent to God and put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and are born again are eternally secure because God not only saves, He preserves those that are born again. Do you understand the play on words I'm making here? True salvation is steadfast like a pillar that stands and endures an earthquake. If our salvation can be lost, my friends, then what we have to offer to the world is no different than man-made religion. It's no different. It's only a hope so, a maybe. But what Christ preaches is a no so. The perseverance of the saints. Praise God for that. Not the once saved, always saved for the hypocrites, but the perseverance of the saints. Like a pillar that stands. Now it talks about being a pillar in the temple in heaven. Here's an example, and I had to rush through this last week, where we know allegorical language is being used. We know this is an allegory. No, we're not going to be in heaven made of stone standing there for all eternity. Just like Jesus when He said, I am the door, didn't sprout a knob and hinges. It's allegorical language. Well, you can't just take any part of Scripture and make it allegory or symbolism like people try to do with the millennium. We know this is allegory based upon the testimony of Scripture. This is not a literal building in heaven. How do we know? Revelation chapter 21 verse 22 is very clear when it describes the temple in heaven. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. So this isn't a literal building. The temple is God and Christ. The pillars in that temple is the true church. Friends, that's a place of privilege in the eternal kingdom. 
The church has a place of privilege in the millennial kingdom and in eternity. Israel has a place. A literal, physical kingdom in the millennium. Christ will reign over all the earth from Jerusalem. David himself will sit on the throne of Israel. Christ will reign over the earth. David will administer the kingdom of Israel. The saints will administer local governments in that period of reign. Israel has a place, but the church has a privileged place too. Their home will be in the New Jerusalem. That four square city suspended over the earth. So the temple's not literal here. The church as a pillar in the temple, that promise means a place of privilege. The church stands when all else has fallen. And that is seen as, we, as you study Revelation, I believe that the new Jerusalem described there at the end comes down from heaven and it is suspended over the earth during the thousand year reign of Christ. And the saints of God will go back and forth between the holy city and the earth. But at some point after a thousand years, all enemies will be put at the feet of Christ and Satan will try to overthrow the king. They'll gather in the camps outside of the New Jerusalem just like Sennacherib's armies gathered outside the kingdom of Hezekiah. Fire will come down from heaven and destroy it. And then God will destroy the present heavens and the earth. They will pass away with a great noise and melt with fervent heat. And then He'll recreate a new heavens and a new earth for all eternity after that great white throne judgment. But I believe the New Jerusalem transcends those things. It's there during the millennium and it's there for all eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. The new Jerusalem is the bridge between the old creation and the new creation. So that picture of a pillar is seen right there in the new Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ. It stands when all else has fallen. It transcends from the millennial kingdom to the eternal state. What a picture of the steadfastness and endurance of salvation that is in Christ. Those in that temp, the church, the pillars, they will no more go out. That doesn't mean they don't leave the city, that they're cooped up in some city for all eternity. It means that they'll no longer go out from the protection of the temple, which is God and Christ. They'll no longer be exposed to temptation and trials of the present world. Permanent residence in the presence of God is the promise to the faithful remnant. Permanent residence. If you don't desire that, if you don't look for that because you're too occupied with this world, I don't think you know Christ. I used to work with a pastor in Nepal that had a big name for himself and he was all about raising money and doing all these programs and I worked with him for a time. But we had a lunch meeting one day and as we were going into this meeting, he acted very flustered and just distressed and depressed and I said, well, What's going on? He's like, I've just been too busy. I said, well, cheer up. I said, maybe the Lord will come today for His church and we can be delivered from this. And he looked at me and says, oh, the Lord can't come today. I've got too much work to do. At that point, I thought, I can't be working with this man. He's got a problem, a serious spiritual problem. And you say, well, man, that's just a little statement. Well, no, that reveals the heart. Those that love the appearing of Christ, that look for His coming, are the ones promised the crown of righteousness. If you're truly saved, you long to be with the One who saved you. Don't tell me you know Christ and the here and now is more important than the future. That's man-made religion. But permanent residency in the presence of God, what a promise. That's something religion can't promise its followers. 
permanent residency in the presence of God, not in the presence of God only, but from the presence of sin, from the presence of religion, from uncertainty. Salvation has three parts. I said this last week, I'll say it again. Justification. Christ declare, God declares us righteous based upon our repentance and faith in Christ. That's freedom from the penalty of sin. Sanctification. Those that are justified are sanctified. That means that the Holy Spirit and His work conforms you over time to the image of Christ you've been declared to have. To the righteousness that's been imputed to you. That's sanctification. Freedom from the power of sin. And then there's glorification. That's the eternal state in the presence of God. Freedom from the presence of sin. There is not one without the other. Paul spoke to those who were justified as being glorified in the past tense. It's as sure. It all goes together. And it, con it uh, consummates in freedom from the presence of sin. Isn't that an amazing promise? The temptations, the struggles, the old man we deal with day to day, we'll be free from that at some point. There won't be these crazy thoughts in your head. There won't be these bad attitudes. There won't be these frustrations and lashings out. The temptation won't even be there. We'll be free. That's a promise to the faithful remnant. Well, identity. A pillar in the temple that will no more go out. And then I want you to see what, at the, mainly the latter part of this verse, verse. It's almost like Jesus is describing an identity tag, a tag. You know, you have to have a, 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 an entrance tag to get into certain classified areas in the government. Or if you're working a booth at a trade show, you've got to have a tag that identifies you, that lets you go in as a vendor. There's a three-tiered identity tag mentioned here for the believer. I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. These are the tokens of salvation. An identity tag. Not only an identity, but an identity tag for the faithful believer. Not only will you know that you are Christ, not only will He know that, that uh, you are His, but others will know that you are His. Even those that cursed you and mocked you yet claim to know Him. A three-tiered identity tag. What is this? Full clearance. Full clearance for the believer in the millennial kingdom of Christ. Full clearance in the eternal state. Access to the King. Full clearance. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. I want to contrast this with what is spoken here in Matthew chapter 22 verses 11 through 14. Here we have a scene in heaven. The marriage supper of the Lamb. I believe the order of events in the last days is this. Christ will rapture His church at some point. Antichrist will sign a treaty with the nation of Israel. The tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, will begin. At the midpoint of that tribulation, things will go haywire when the treaty is broken and wrath comes from heaven. But sometime during that tribulation period, while the church is in heaven, the church will stand before the judgment seat of Christ in terms of reward, not in terms of judgment. And there'll be an accuser at that judgment seat of Christ. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And he'll try to bring up every little thing at that judgment 
But it won't work because one drop of blood purchased the souls of those that are saved. And the believer will be judged for reward. At that point, Satan is cast out of heaven. Revelation chapter 12, the dragon. That didn't happen at the cross, friends. It happens in the future. Because if it happened at the cross, how could Satan in Revelation 12 be called the accuser of the brethren? The brethren in that context means church. There was no church at the cross. It didn't begin until Pentecost. Satan wasn't cast out of heaven. Okay? Satan's not bound in the bottomless pit right now. I've heard people that claim to be amillennial is what they say. They say that Satan is bound right now and that we're actually living in the millennium. How can you be so foolish? Christ is reigning over the earth right now? Yeah, He reigns in the hearts of His people. Yeah, He's sovereign King over creation, but He's reigning over the earth? Look at the earth. No, He will. He's sovereignly in the backdrop right now, reigning through His people, but there's a day coming when His boot will be in the neck of His enemies. He will literally reign. Okay? But I believe during this time, believers are judged, and then there's a wedding feast. And that wedding feast is the prelude to the church returning with Christ at Armageddon with the bride to conquer the earth. This fits the imagery of a Jewish wedding. The church is spoken of as a bride. Christ is the bridegroom. In a Jewish wedding, the bridegroom would sneak in and snatch his bride in the night. Hints of this are in the parable. Jesus talks about the ten virgins. He sneaks and takes her off to a secret location, at which time the marriage is consummated. And then at some later time, they show up on the scene and make a public declaration of the wedding. That's a Jewish wedding. And you can't divorce Jesus' wedding imagery concerning the church from a Jewish wedding. We think of it in terms of a Catholic wedding or American wedding. No way. He was a Jew preaching to Jews. So you can't take that imagery out. and You see how everything fits that. But anyway, Christ will return with His church. But during that time, in that period of tribulation, is the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage supper. And something happens at the marriage supper here in Matthew chapter 22. This is what Jesus is speaking about in a parable. He's talking about a parable of the wedding supper. Verse 11, And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into the outer darkness. And there shall be weeping and wiping, gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. So somebody was in the wedding feast that didn't have a name tag, didn't have a wedding garment. That's not us. The believer has an identity tag from God. Full clearance. But somebody was in there that didn't have full clearance. Who do you think that is? Who do you think that person is there? You think the church, that some fake Christian would be there in that wedding supper? No. That is Satan in my opinion. I believe that's the devil cast out of heaven. It's described as the dragon in Revelation 12. But he's cast out. The accuser that tried to accuse the brethren at the judgment seat of Christ then tries to crash the wedding supper and that's it. You're out of here. He's cast out of heaven and then woe unto the inhabitants of the earth for he knows his time is short. And then Satan, the dragon, goes after Israel with everything he has and tries to wipe it out. Like a flood. But when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord lifts up a standard against him. 
This is not our end here in Matthew. This isn't possible for the believer because the believer has a three-tiered identity tag. What is that identity tag? Not only the name of God, which is an amazing thing in and of itself, Jehovah God, the Tetragrammaton in Hebrew, yod heh vav That name of God will be written on His saints for all eternity. What an amazing thing. Some of us like to wear t-shirts with our favorite team. Some of us like to wear shirts that show we're a student of a karate dojo. That stuff's temporal. But to have God's name inscribed on us for all eternity, that's a blessing. That's an amazing thing. I don't know what that means. I don't know if it will be inscribed in our, 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 our skin like Jesus and His thigh has a name inscribed when He arrives on that white horse. I don't know what that means, but we'll bear the name of God for all eternity. That shows that we are His. We are His. Not only that, will that identity tag uh, proclaim the name of God, it will proclaim our place of residence. Our place of residence. What is that? The name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. Talk about an ID. Mine says Jesse Boyd, uh, 8164 West North Carolina 10 Highway. You know, my driver's license, whatever. And it's got North Carolina on it, my state of residence. Wow. I'm glad I'm a North Carolina citizen and not a citizen of a liberal place like California or New York. No offense to my California friends who may listen to this podcast, but to have the name New Jerusalem, citizen of New Jerusalem, something that the peoples of the earth during the, during the millennium may not even have access to. Place of residence, New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem described in Revelation is a four-square city. It's like a cube. And the length, the width, and the height are approximately the distance from Miami, Florida to New York City. Gold suspended over the earth. It's okay to read that, and it's okay to get excited about that. And there's no reason to think that those measurements and those descriptions there are anything but literal. Because Scripture doesn't tell us otherwise. Place of residence. And then finally, not only the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, I will write upon Him my new name. Now the language there it indicates not my new name in terms of Christ's new name, that Christ will have a name, new name. But it, what is implied is my new name for Him. So this new name for the believer is His new name, not Christ's new name. We will have a new name in heaven. Not a name that, that links us with the old man or the old life but a new name. It's funny if you look in the Scriptures when people meet the Lord or encounter the Lord face to face, their names get changed. Simon to Peter. Saul to Paul. Judas to Mud. When we have a physical encounter with Christ, we get a new name. I don't know what that name is. I don't know what it means. I don't know what the language of heaven is. Some say it's Hebrew. I don't know. There's no evidence of that in the Scriptures. Maybe it's the language that was spoken before Babel here on the earth. We have no idea what that was. But that brings with it a new name. 
That should be exciting. I think it's interesting how believers in other countries that are raised in Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim context, when they come to Christ and are freed from that religion, they often change their name. They might pick a Bible name. So if you meet a guy from India whose name is David, or a guy from Nepal whose name is uh, Paul or Daniel, uh, he may very well be a Christian. And number two, that was a name change that happened with his conversion because they want to disassociate themselves from their religion. Now, Bishnu doesn't choose to do that. Bishnu's name, the word Bishnu is a Hindu god, and the reason he hasn't changed his name is because he wants people to know that I'm not denying my Nepali identity. And I'm not saying that I'm no longer Nepali. I am Nepali, and this is the name I was given, but I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So I understand that rationale as well. But people change their names. And that's, that's fine. We're going to have our name changed too. And that's what that means here. I will write upon Him my new name for Him. Okay? For Him. That's the implication there with the way the language is structured. Um, Three-tiered identity tag. Name of God, place of residence, my new name. That's versus the identity given to the remnant by the man-centered church. The man-centered church, what's the identity it gives today to the remnant who seek to preach the gospel and be faithful to the ministry of the church? The identity is outcast. I got a nasty email from someone in Morganton this week concerning last weekend's festival where we went to preach and hand out tracts and we held up a cross and the police made us take it to the car. They accused us of, of holding a dangerous weapon. A news uh, media outlet decided to pick up the story. We didn't call them with it. We didn't seek publicity, but they called me and I, I was happy to talk to them about it. But I got a nasty email and the lady said, you people are the ones that give Christians like me a bad name. You're, you people are ones that turn people away from the gospel. If I've heard that once, I've heard it a million times. I just chuckle. If I'm one that through my actions and my labor for Christ, if I'm one that gives Laodicean churchianity a bad name, praise God, that's what I want to do. I hope I give lukewarm Christians a bad name in this country. And trust me, the lost, those that are searching, those that are depressed in this life and don't know Christ, they see Laodicean lukewarm churchianity and they see it for what it is, hypocrisy. So Christian, be one that gives fake Christians a bad name. But that's the identity given by those that say they are gods, but they are not. That's in contrast. But in contrast, God gives us a new identity that shows that we are beloved of Him. The new Jerusalem mentioned here is just as literal as the new heavens and the new earth. There's no reason to believe that it's anything different or anything symbolic in Revelation 21 and 22, like the obvious reference to the temple here earlier. On a side note, look at the language here Jesus used. He says, My God, several times. In the name of My God, the city of My God, that cometh down from heaven from My God. Here is a place, in addition to several other places in the New Testament, like John 14, Jesus makes the comment, My Father which sent Me is greater than I. 
I've noticed how Muslims and sometimes atheists will cite these Scriptures to try to prove that Jesus isn't God. Well, if Jesus is God, why did He say, My Father is greater than I in John 14? Why does He talk about my God here in Revelation chapter 3? I believe these Scriptures are stumbling blocks for reprobates. The Bible's full of stumbling blocks that people who can't see the truth with spiritual eyes stumble over. And I think this is an example of that. You know, you see other examples in the Scriptures of how God sends delusion where people that are bent on living for the world and denying the witness of God stumble over the truth. In fact, in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles 18, God sent a lying spirit to the prophets of Ahab. Not Satan, God sent it. God sent an evil spirit to King Saul. Not Satan, God. God in 2 Thessalonians 2 sends a spirit of delusion excuse me, on those here on the earth during the time of tribulation who rejected the gospel. A spirit of delusion. I think in that same vein you'll see things in Scripture that the natural man can't understand. They're stumbling blocks. I don't see any problem with the deity of Christ when I read this. When Jesus says, My Father is greater than I, that doesn't train wreck my understanding that Jesus is equal with God. They're both God. Why? Because I understand with spiritual eyes. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural man can't receive the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. But the spiritual man, that means the saved man who understands and has the Holy Spirit, has the potential to understand all things. So guys, the key to understanding the Scriptures is not a seminary degree. It's not a college education. Okay? It's not being intellectual. It's not being able to read Greek and Hebrew. It's not being able to read big thick commentaries or the Institutes of the Christian Religion without getting bored. I know guys that talk more about John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion than they do about the Bible. Now, that is one of the most boring books I have ever read. I'm sorry. It is boring. It's full of good theology, but it's boring. Okay? That's just what it is. But those things aren't required to understand the Scriptures. What's required is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God indwells the believer. And in such a way that even the most uneducated and poor village man from a far end of the earth can have as much understanding as the Ph.D. professor in a premier religious university. I believe that. William Tyndall, who translated the Bible into English um, and was instrumental in the Bible getting into the hands of the English speakers, said, if the Lord will allow in my life, I will labor so that the plowboy can understand just as much Scripture as the Pope in Rome. And that's the witness of the Holy Spirit. So don't think because you're not educated or you don't have a seminary degree or you can't read Greek that you can't understand the Scriptures. With the Spirit, you can understand them. Because you have the potential to understand all things. But don't divert from the Scriptures. Don't pick and choose what you want to understand. Let yourself be taught by the Scripture. Let the Scripture define your theology, not your theology define the Scriptures. But I think these are stumbling blocks. How many of you ever read in school growing up an American literary classic called To Kill a Mockingbird? Anybody remember that story? That story is about a young girl who befriends a black man and it's kind of in the context 
of complex racial and socioeconomic issues that she, as a young girl, I think, what was the name of the girl? Uh, Scout. She, from her point of view, doesn't see. This, is, this man, this black man is just a friend to her. She can't understand all of this stuff going on. It's a very interesting story of how complex racial and socioeconomic problems are seen through the eyes of the child. It's a literary device called literary point of view. From Scout's points of view, point of view, she doesn't understand the racism of her town. She doesn't understand the prejudice between the rich and the poor and those forces in her town. But the reader is able to understand it as they read from her point of view. That's all that's going on here. Jesus is using, as He writes and speaks, literary point of view. Jesus was how many natures? Jesus had two natures. What was it? Come on, guys. This is basic theology 101. Jesus was God and Jesus was man. He had a human side. We forget that sometimes. What's the term for that? Anybody know the theological term for that? What do they call that union of God and man? Ricky. It's called a hypostatic union. The union between Jesus' human nature and His God nature. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Why? Well, only 100% man could rightfully suffer the penalty for a man's crime. But only 100% God could survive the, I mean, could endure the wrath of God and survive. Only 100% God could actually be a perfect sacrifice. So Jesus was both. And there are times when Jesus speaks in the Gospels and here from His human nature. In terms of Jesus' human nature, God was greater than Him. God was greater than the human side of Christ. God is the God of the human side of Christ as revealed here. That doesn't diminish His deity. It's in perfect harmony. So Jesus in John 14 is speaking, or is speaking from His human nature. What does that mean? Look at John chapter 14 real quick. What is Jesus communicating here? This is not a stumbling block. People that say that it's denying the deity of Christ are not only uh, profoundly ignorant of what Jesus says right here in this very chapter, in other places in John where I and my Father are one, they show an inability to understand context. John chapter 14, verse 28. Um, you have heard how I have said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I go unto my Father, for my Father is greater than I. Jesus is talking about in that context how He's leaving them and He's going to send the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that greater works would they do if He leaves them. So what does this mean? Well, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving to go be with the Father. And if I'm with the Father, my Holy Spirit will indwell all of you. And I'm not limited to space and time. And greater works you will do. When Jesus walked the earth, the disciples didn't go to the end of the earth with the Gospel. But once He went back and sent the Spirit, the Gospel went to the end of the earth. Greater works. That doesn't mean greater than Christ. It means greater works because Christ goes from being a man in a finite piece of, uh, uh, on a finite piece of ground in a finite place and time 
to heaven where He indwells the believer. So Jesus is saying in terms of my place and time at this point, my Father is greater than I. That's why I'm returning to Him. My Father is greater than the human side of Christ. But that doesn't mean Jesus isn't God. Jesus tells them right there in John chapter 14, in verse 9, if you've seen Me, you've seen God the Father. But it takes spiritual eyes to understand that. To me, it's easy. To you, it's easy. But to the natural man, he can't understand. It's a stumbling block. In Revelation chapter 3, when Jesus speaks of His God, He's speaking as the human millennial King over the earth. Jesus' natures of God and man are forever fused. The hypostatic union is forever fused. He bears the marks of the human side of His body for all eternity in the hands and feet. Thomas saw that. And when Jesus is speaking to the church at Philadelphia, He refers to God as my God because He's speaking to them as the millennial king who is giving them a place of clearance, a place of identity in that kingdom. doesn't deny that Jesus is God. That's His human side. His human nature. A very important aspect of Christ's work was not only His death. God is a man who died and God is a man who rose from the dead, but God is a man who was obedient completely to the law of God. His active obedience is what made Him a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus, God in human form, lived a perfect life without sin. That's an important element of the Gospel. There are a lot of people out here today that, don't, that claim they are Christians and they think Jesus sinned when He walked the earth. Jesus was tempted, but He didn't sin. He was tempted just like we are because He had a human nature. But it was untainted via a virgin birth from the sin nature, but He still had human desires, human hungers, human longings. But because He was God, He resisted temptation. But Jesus from His human side, when He walked the earth, yes, God was greater than Him. Jesus as millennial King looks to His God. But Jesus as God is equal with God. Jesus as God is my God. It's funny because when Thomas finally sees Jesus with his holes in his hands and feet and the, the hole in his side, what does Thomas do? He falls before Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. Does Jesus rebuke him? No. Because Thomas understood. Jesus said, you, You've been with me so long and you guys don't understand. If you've seen God, you've, if you've seen me, you've seen God. See, spiritual eyes understand these things. Just because Jesus says, My God or My Father is greater than I in those contexts doesn't mean He's not God. Doesn't mean He's not equal with the Father. Equality of deity, difference in office. Just like my dad and I are equal human beings. But we have a different office. He's my father. I'm his son. But the lost can't understand that. They can't understand that. So don't get discouraged when people say things like that. And maybe you don't have an answer. It's spiritual eyes that open our understanding to the Scriptures. It's funny how Muslims and, and atheists will use those same verses to attack the deity of Christ. I find that Muslims, atheists, and homosexuals actually have a lot of things in common. I've even heard homosexuals quote those Scriptures. But atheists who deny God 
Muslims who worship Muhammad as God and homosexuals that are just, all they care about is sex, they have a lot of things in common. Interesting. All of them worship a man. Their God is a man. The atheist God is a man. He's a religious person. The Muslim's God is, is Muhammad, a man. And the homosexual's God is a man. A man out of his natural state. And all three of these go nuts when you mention the deity of Jesus Christ. It's funny. It's funny. Sin nature is the sin nature. Verse 13, the invitation of chapter 3, the end of this message. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. These invocations in all of the messages prove that these messages are meant for an audience beyond the local church of John's day. If it weren't meant for us, then this last passage makes no sense. He that has an ear, that means a spiritual ear, let him hear what's being said. Not only let him hear, but let him examine himself. Are we the type of Christians that Christ would commend because we're of little strength, we put our strength in God, because we kept His Word and because we don't deny His name? Is that us? Or maybe we're like those at Pergamos who try to marry the church with the world, caught up in the world. Maybe we're like those at Laodicea. We're lukewarm. He that has an ear, let him hear. What is God saying to us today? Yet this message, it certainly transcends the church of John's day. It transcends the Philadelphia church period. It is a message for us today because God always has a remnant. And the remnant prevails even in times of apostasy and lukewarmness like we're experiencing today. Receive Christ. Cherish the Bible. Be a faithful witness. That's the remnant body of the Lord Jesus Christ as described here. These go here hand in hand. And my friends, Christ is about the future. Christ is about eternity. It's not about the here and now. Some would say Christ is about your best life now. If you're living your best life now, you're on your way to hell. Period. You're barreling toward hell if you're living your best life now. Repent. Come to Christ and live now that you might live for eternity. Your best life now is a lie from hell. I had a seminary professor, a female, that taught a church planting class at my seminary. That's in and of itself has its own problems. But she claimed that we needed to be, as we strive to plant churches and do evangelism, we needed to move away from issues of the future, the coming of Christ and heaven and hell, that people are concerned with those things. We need to show them what Jesus can do for them here and now. Well, that's a joke. Jesus doesn't promise us wealth and prosperity in this earth. He tells us men will hate us. What He promises us is an eternal identity. And how can you divorce heaven and hell, God's judgment, eternity, from the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? You can't do it. Jesus didn't do it in His preaching. The apostles didn't do it in their preaching. The faithful church throughout history has never done it in its preaching. How can we do that? The church at Philadelphia. May that be the church we strive to be like. Smyrna is a church worth modeling, but I don't desire to be persecuted. I don't want persecution. But Philadelphia is a church we can strive to be.
looking for the vindication, the deliverance, and the identity promised from God. I want to end the last couple minutes of the, of the time today with a story of an of a, of a incident that took place during the Philadelphia church period in church history. That would be the 18th and 19th centuries. The Great Awakenings, the uh, Great Revivals, the Welsh Revival, and, and the missionary activity that went to the ends of the earth, India, China, Africa. Lots of great stories, and it's hard to find one out of so many to share. But I found this very interesting because the tone of the churches in the, day, in the days of, of these events was much like we see today. Not, not so great in intensity and number, but much like we see today. There was an Anglican priest by the name of William Haslam who lived in the 1840s and 50s in Cornwall, England. And he was churchianity up one side and down the other until he was converted by the preaching of one of his uh, own sermons. And it's interesting that he was rebuked by someone who questioned his salvation in a way that we're often ostracized for if we do. If we do that today, oh, you're so unloving and unforgiving. But it was that rebuke that God used to change him. And it's amazing how his preaching thereafter was changed and God used it to bring great revival to England. An amazing story. So I just want to read this to you this morning. Pay attention. This is just... You don't hear stuff like this anymore. 1851. This is written by Haslam himself. This was a time of great disappointment and discouragement. Everything had turned out so different to the expectation I had formed and cherished on first coming to this place. He's referring to his job as pastorate. He wanted to be a pastor. And he's disappointed. I was then full of hope and intended to carry all before me with great success, and I thought I did. But alas, there was a mistake somewhere. Something was wrong in my ministry. In those days when I was building my new church and talking about the tower and the spire we were going to erect, an elderly Christian lady who was sitting in her wheelchair calmly listened to our conversation and said, Will you begin to build your spire from the top? It was a strange question, but she evidently meant something and looked for an answer. I gave it saying, no, madam, not from the top, but from the foundation. She replied, that's right, that's right, and went on with her knitting. This question was not asked in jest or in ignorance. It was like a riddle. What did she mean? In a few years, this lady passed away, but her enigmatic words remained. No doubt she thought to herself that I was beginning at the wrong end, while I went on talking about the choir, our organ, the worship time, and all the things that were going to attempt, we were going to attempt in this new church, that I was aiming at sanctification without justification, intending to teach people to be holy before they were even saved or pardoned. This is exactly what I was doing. I had planted the boards of my tabernacle of worship, not in silver sockets, but in the sand of the wilderness. In other words, I was teaching people to worship God who is a spirit, not for love of Him who gave His Son to die for them, but in the fervor and enthusiasm of human nature. My superstructure was built on sand, and hence the continual disappointment and the, that last discouraging overflow. No wonder that my life was a failure and my labors ineffectual, inasmuch as my efforts were not put forth in faith. My work was not done as a thank offering, but rather as a meritorious effort to obtain favor from God. Repentance toward God, however earnest and sincere, 
Without faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ is not complete. Or it's not satisfying. There may be a change of mind and will producing a change of actions which are done in order to pacify conscience and to obtain God's favor in return, but this is not enough. It is like preparing the ground without sowing seed and then being disappointed that there is no harvest. A garden is not complete or successful unless the ground has been properly prepared, nor unless flourishing plants are growing in it. Repentance with faith, the two go together. They constitute the fullness of God's religion. We have to believe not in the fact that we have given ourselves, we know this in our own consciousness, but in the fact that God, who is more willing to take than we to give, has accepted us. We rejoice and work, not as persons who have surrendered ourselves to God, but out of loving gratitude as those who have been changed by Him to this end. I will now go on to tell how I was brought at this critical period of my life to real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This was done in a way I did not understand, and moreover, in a way I little expected. I had promised to visit a Mr. Aitken of Pendine to advise him about our new church and to invite him to church, which was then building, and now in order to divert my thoughts, I made up my mind to go visit him at once. Soon after my arrival, as we were seated comfortably by the fire, he asked me how the parish prospered. He said, I often take shame to myself when I think of all your work, but my brother, are you really satisfied? I said, no, I am not satisfied. Why not? Because I'm making a rope of sand which looks very well till I pull it, and then when I expect to hold it, it gives way. What do you mean? Why, I replied, these Cornish people are ingrained schismatics. I then told him of my gardener's conversion and my great disappointment. Well, he said, if I were taken ill, I certainly would not send for you. I'm sure you could not do me any good, for you're not converted yourself. That's what his friend said to him. Not converted, I exclaimed. How can you say that to me? He said quietly, I am sure of it, or you would not have come here to complain about your gardener and his conversion. If you had been converted, you would have remained at home to rejoice with him. It is very clear that you are not saved. I was vexed with him for saying that, and I attempted to dispute the point, but he was calm and confident, while I, on the other hand, was uneasy and trying to justify myself. In the course of our conversation, he said, you do not seem to know the difference between the natural conscience and the work of the Spirit. Here he and me, for I only knew of one thing, and he referred to two. However, we battled on until two o'clock in the morning, and then he showed me to my bedroom. Pointing to the bed, he said, ah... A very holy man of God died there a short time ago. This did not add to my comfort or induce sleep, for I was already much disturbed by the conversation we had had and did not enjoy the idea of getting to bed and sleeping where one had so lately died, even though he was a holy man. Resolving to sit up, I looked around the room and seen some books on the table. I took one up, which happened to be Hare's Mission of the Comforter. Almost the first page I glanced at told the difference between the natural conscience and the work of the Spirit. This I read and read and read and read until morning. That morning, as soon as breakfast was finished, I resumed the conversation of the previous night with the additional light I had gained on the subject. We had not talked long before Mr. Aitken said, Ah, my brother, you have changed your ground since last night. I at once confessed that I had been reading this book, which he did not know was in my room, nor even in the house. He was curious to see it. He then challenged me on another point and said, Do you have peace with God? I answered without hesitation. Yes. For eight years or more, I had regarded God as my friend. 
Mr. A went on to ask me, how did you get peace? Oh, I said, I have it continually. I pray every day. I get it at the daily service. I get it through reading the Bible, through Holy Communion. I've made it a rule to carry my sins there every Sunday and have often come away from that Holy Sacrament feeling happy and free as a bird. My friend looked surprised but did not dispute this part of my experience. He contented himself by asking me quietly, How long does your peace last? This question made me think. I said, I suppose not a week for I have to do the same thing the next Sunday. He replied, I thought so. Opening the Bible, he found the fourth chapter of John and read, Whosoever drinketh this water shall never thirst again. The woman of Samaria drew water for herself at Jacob's well and quenched her thirst, but she had to come again and again to the same well. She had no idea of getting water except by drawing any more than you have of getting peace except through the means you use. The Lord said to her, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give to me to drink, thou would have asked him and he would have given to thee living water. My friend pointed out the difference between getting water from drawing from a well and having a living well within you springing up. I said, I've never heard of such a thing. I suppose not, he answered. Have you this living water? I continued. Yes, thank God, I have had it for the last 30 years. Well, how did you get it? Look here, he said, pointing to the 10th verse. Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Shall we ask him, I said? He answered, with all my heart. And immediately pushing back his chair, knelt down at his round table, and I knelt at the opposite end. What he prayed for I do not know. I was completely overcome and melted to tears. I sat down on the ground sobbing while he shouted aloud, praising God. As soon as I could get up, I made for the door. I took my cat, my hope, and my coat and my umbrella and said, I am afraid to stay here any longer. With that, I ran out the door, leaving my carpet bag behind. It was seven miles to Penzance, but in my excitement, I walked and ran all the way and arrived there before the coach, which was to have called for me, but brought my carpet bag instead. In the meantime, while I was waiting for it, I saw a tract by Mr. Aiken in a shop window, which I bought, and got into the train to return to Baldu. My mind was in such a distracted state that I sought relief in reading. I had not long been reading when I came to a paragraph in italics. Then shall he say unto them, Depart from me, I never knew you. The question arrested me. What if he says that to me? Ah, that is not likely, but what if he does? It cannot be. I have given up the world. I love God. I visit the sick. I am a pastor. I have daily service and weekly communion. But what if he does? What if he does? I could not bear the thought. It seemed to overwhelm me. As I read the tract, I saw the words were spoken to persons who were taken by surprise. So should I be. They were able to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and you have, thou hast taught in our streets, and thy, in thy name we have cast out devils and done many wonderful works. Yet with all this, Jesus replied, Depart from me, I never knew you. I did not see how I could escape if such men as these were to be rejected. Conviction was laying hold upon me, and the circle was becoming narrower. The thought pressed heavily upon me. What a dreadful thing if I am wrong. Added to this, I trembled to think of those I had misled. Can it be true? Is it so? I remembered some I had watched over most zealously, lest the dissenters should come and pray with them. I had sent them out of the world resting upon a false hope, administering the sacrament to them for want of knowing any other way of bringing them into God's favor. I used to grieve over any parishioner who died without the last sacrament and often wonder how it would fare with dissenters.
dissenters were those who got out of the churchianity and started having house churches and things like that. Or those that claimed to be converted. My mind was in a revolution. I do not remember how I got home. I felt as if I were out on the dark, boundless ocean without light, without oar, without rudder. I endured the greatest agony of my mind for the souls I had misled, though I had done it ignorantly. They are gone and lost forever. I justly deserved to go also. My distress seemed greater than I could bear. A tremendous storm of wind, rain, and thunder which was raging at the time was quite in sympathy with my feelings. I could not rest. Looking at the graves of some of my faithful churchmen, I wondered, is it really true that they are now cursing me for having misled them? Thursday, Friday, and Saturday passed by each day and night more dark and despairing than the preceding one. On the Sunday, I was so ill that I was quite unfit to preach the service. Mr. Aiken, my friend, had said to me, if I were you, I would shut the church and say to the congregation, I will not preach again until I am converted. Pray for me. I was starting to think that maybe I should do this. And that was such a rude thing for his friend to say to him, wasn't it? <laughs> the sun was shining brightly, and before I could make up my mind to cancel the service, the bells struck out a merry peal and sent their summons far away over the hills. Now the thought came to me that I would go to church and read the morning prayers, and after that dismiss the people. There was no preparation for the Holy Communion that day, and I had deputed the clerk to select the hymns, for I was far too ill to attend to anything myself. The psalms and hymns were especially applicable to my case and seemed to help me so that I thought I would go ahead and read the anti-communion service and then dismiss the people. And while I was reading the gospel, I thought, well, I will just say a few words in explanation of this and give a short message and then I will dismiss them. So I went up into the pulpit and gave out my text. I took it from the gospel of the day. What think you of Christ? Matthew twenty-two forty-two. As I went on to explain the passage, I saw that the Pharisees and scribes did not know that Christ was the Son of God or that He was come to save Him. They were looking for a king, the Son of David, to reign over them at that moment. Something was telling me all the time, you are no better than the Pharisees yourself. You do not believe that He is the Son of God and He has come to save you any more than they did. I do not remember what I said as I was preaching but I felt a wonderful light and joy coming into my soul as I was beginning to see what the Pharisees did not. Whether it was something in my words or my manner or my look, I do not know. But all of a sudden, a local preacher who happened to be in the congregation stood up and putting up his arms, shouted out in a Cornish manner, The parson is converted! The parson is converted! Hallelujah! And in another moment, his voice was lost in the shouts and praises of three or four hundred people in the congregation. Instead of rebuking this extraordinary brawling as I would have done in times past, I joined in the outburst of praise and I, I made us sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And the people sang it with heart and voice over and over again. My churchmen were dismayed and many of them ran out of the place as fast as they could. Still the voice of praise went on and was swelled by numbers of passers-by who came into the church greatly surprised to hear and see what was going on. When this subsided, I found at least 20 people crying for mercy and repentance whose voices had not been heard in the excitement and noise of thanksgiving. They all professed to find peace and joy and believing. Amongst this number, there were three from my own house and we returned home praising God. The news spread in all directions that the parson was converted and that by his own sermon in his own pulpit. 
The church would not hold the crowds who came that evening. I cannot exactly remember what I preached about on that occasion, but one thing I said was that if I had died last week, I would have gone to hell. I felt it was true. So clear and vivid was the conviction through which I had passed, and so distinct was the light into which the Lord had brought me, that I knew and was sure that He had brought me up out of a horrible pit. He had quickened me, who was before dead in trespasses and sins. I felt sure as I had that if I had died last week, I had been lost forever. This was a startling and an alarming word to many of my earnest people who said, What then will become of us? I replied, You will be lost for a certainty if you do not give your hearts to God. At the end of this great and eventful day of my life, my spiritual birthday, on which I passed from death to life by being born from above, I could scarcely sleep for joy. I awoke early the next morning with the impression on my mind that I must get up and go to a village a mile off to tell my friend James about my conversion. He was a good and holy man who had often spoken with me about my soul and had been praying for me for three and a half years. I had scarcely gone halfway before I met him, met him coming towards me. He seemed as much surprised to me to see me as I was to meet him. He looked at me in a strange way and then leaning back against a stone fence, he asked, Are you converted? Why do you ask me? I replied. I am just on my way to your house to tell you the good news that I have found peace. My soul is saved. That's pretty, pretty neat, isn't it? I know that was long. I'm sorry, but that's, that's just one of many examples of how God poured out His Spirit during that period in church history. And He continues to do that today. Things like this happen in other countries. I've seen it. People like Bishnu and James who will be visiting you shortly. These testimonies that God is still saving people ought to be encouragement with us. Not only to examine ourselves, but to keep sharing the Gospel. Even to people we don't think are listening. Even in the presence of a church that says you shouldn't be doing that, you're giving Christians a bad name. God saved a pastor preaching his own sermon. If he can do that, he can use a Gospel tract. He can use you as you share Christ in the workplace or in your home. Be a faithful remnant. Next time I'm with you, we'll get into the church at Laodicea time period we're living in today. But let's don't be discouraged with that. Let's rejoice in the promises given to the remnant today. Anybody have any questions? All right, let's pray over the meal. I know we're a small crowd today, but let's ask the Lord to bless the fellowship. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for the promises of Your Word. Lord, the role of Your Holy Spirit. What an incredible testimony of how You saved a man out of churchianity and preaching his own message and brought salvation to that town in Cornwall that day. Lord, we ask that You would bring that revival to our nation, Lord, to our community today. That we would be faithful, Lord. That we would examine ourselves to make sure we're converted, not by our own work. Are we trusting in our own merits or are we trusting in You? Are we asking You for living water or are we trying to draw it out ourselves? Lord, may we be faithful witnesses who don't deny Your Word, who don't deny Your name, who labor in your strength and not our own. Even in times when people uh, would accuse us falsely or accuse us of, of uh, giving Christians a bad name, Lord, help us to be patient with these two because there were men who were patient with that preacher and prayed for him for three and a half years when he seemed so self-righteous and pharisaical, and yet God saved him. Some of these folks we speak with, Lord, some that hated what happened in Morganton last weekend. Lord, You may be working on their hearts. You may be saving them very soon. 
So we pray for them, Lord. Thank You for conviction. Thank You for the identity we have in Christ, Lord. The name of God permanently resting upon us, Lord. The name of our place of residence, New Jerusalem, and a new name You will give us. We look forward to that day. May this food bless us. May our fellowship be sweet. Pray for those that aren't amongst us that You'll bring them back safely. And thanks for those that are joining us today, Lord, that aren't normally here. I pray they'd be we're blessed as well. All these things I pray in Christ's name. Amen.